Hi, I'm John Canemaker, author, animator, blah, blah, blah. And I'm welcoming you to the Skull Rock podcast. Welcome. Skull Rock podcast, talking all things Disney with your hosts, El John Go and Dave Bossert. Welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast, and happy holidays. If this is your first time checking out the show, welcome. Every week, we talk about all things Disney and pop culture, with never-before-heard stories, behind-the-scenes moments from some of your favorite Disney films, theme park attractions, performances, books, music, and much more. I'm one of your co-hosts, Al John Go, musician and lifelong Disney, Marvel, and Star Wars fan, and pop culturist. And you can contact me, Aljon, A-L-J-O-N, at SkullRockPodcast.com. And I'm Dave Bossert. I'm an artist, filmmaker, author, and welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can also like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can also email me at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. And Al John, wow, we are barreling into the holidays, aren't we? We are. Did you get all your uh, Christmas shopping, holiday yeah, shopping? Yeah, I, I, I got some of it done. You know, I mean, it's uh, it's an ongoing process. <laughs> but I, I will I will say though that the, you know this week is like this is the last week that you can really sort of get guaranteed shipping before Christmas. Uh huh. Yeah. You know, and I think I think the post office is going to have a tsunami of packages. I think so too. Uh, we, you know, knowing that supply chain has been kind of nerfed, you know, among other things, I tried to get my holiday shopping done uh, early. And I think the last of my holiday uh, shopping bits are coming in maybe this week, hopefully, but uh, maybe it's just, they're the non-essentials. They're like the secondary gifts, all the primary stuff that I knew <laughs> I had to get yeah. for the wife and, and the family. And you, I was going to say, you, you've got, you've got a big Christmas here because you got two kiddos now. Yeah. You know, we've got the two kiddos. We got shopping done for them and, you know, uh, had to make sure that uh, we didn't have uh, any supply chain issues because that would make for uh, not good. I mean, they're they're too young to know, right? Because they're well, two two years old, you know, one year old. Like they're they're too young to know, but you still want to make them good, you know. Well, you know, they're they're at that age that on Christmas morning it's going to be so much fun for them. But you watch, they're going to have more fun with the boxes than what's actually in the boxes. <laughs> they're like cats. <laughs> I can't wait. It'll be a lot of fun. Hey, by the way, before we get knee deep into it, uh, you, we've got an awesome guest lined up for today. We, we really do. We've got uh, uh, director, animator, storyboard artist, uh, Steve Anderson, and uh, he directed Meet the Robinsons. So we're going to be talking with him all about Meet the Robinsons. I've been waiting all week to say Mr. Anderson now that the Matrix is back. <laughs> you know, I've been waiting all week for that. Yeah, I, you know, listen, I think Meet the Robinsons is one of the underrated films uh, in, the, in the Disney catalog, and uh, I think uh, Steve's going to shed some light on the film and also give us some great stories on uh, on how that movie came to be. I can't wait. It's one of Kristen and I's favorite films. It's uh, so rewatchable, but we, we love it for so many different reasons. I'm sure we'll talk about that in the show. But I would like to talk about what's going on this week. Skull Rock Podcast. Ripped from the headlines. It's Skull Rock Podcast headline news. 
David, you, you, you talked to me before we started hitting record here about the devastating tornadoes, and uh, wow, it's uh, yeah, you know my heart goes out to everybody up there in Kentucky. I mean, just total devastation up there, and uh, we just uh, pray uh, that there's no more fatalities. And uh, wish people a, a, a quick recovery, especially with the holidays looming. Absolutely. You know, but I tell you, we're the people here, uh, Kentucky, Arkansas, Missouri, uh, of course, Tennessee, where I'm from. It's uh, we do our very best to help our brothers and sisters in need. So I'm yeah. sure that uh, you know, everybody's going to band together and, and help each other out during this time. But yeah, I mean, yeah, and th- that wasn't too far from you, right? I mean, that's a couple hundred miles away from Nashville. Yeah. You know, it came down three o'clock in the morning. We had the uh, tornado alarm go off and we were like, oh, what is that? Because it's very rare. You, you, we get to hear that that uh, tornado sound. And of course, the sirens are going off in the area. We all have tornado um, sirens in the area, too. So uh, everybody's like, take, take shelter. And we're like, Oh my goodness, this is not good. And uh, crazy. yeah, one of my friends got hit and lives across town and it, the damage was minimal, but you know, we're all grateful that we're okay. But uh, yeah, it's one of those wow. things. So uh, anyway, everybody, we're keeping those people affected, of course, in our thoughts as we do every time these type of disasters happen. Absolutely. Another, another thing that uh, is going on is that uh, everyone is getting into the give uh, the giving spirit this weekend. Uh, downtown Disney over there at the Disneyland Resort and uh, at uh, Walt Disney World too. I just wanted to to raise some attention. Um, it's really cool that when you go to um, shopdisney.com, uh, they kicked off their ultimate toy drive for Toys for Tots. That is Walt Disney's one of his favorite. Um, charities he's always supported as well as disney supported back since 19 uh what 1947 is when they initially yeah, started yeah out. right out right after the uh, world war ii ended absolutely and, and, and the studio uh designed uh the toys for tots uh, little train logo yeah um you know so which they still use to this day yeah how cool is that right yeah. so if anybody's interested um, in this, please feel free to uh, look into it. The Disney Parks blog has made a post uh, regarding that, or you can go to shopdisney.com. We'll put some links in the show notes as well. Uh, another thing that is happening is that the Eternals is, uh, I believe it's already on Disney Plus, which is great. And Encanto, which is a, I guess, a new modern classic. I, you know, it's kind of been a little bit low key in terms of promotion, but I feel like it's a it's a really great, uh, it looks great anyway from the promotion that I've seen. The promos I've seen looks like it's going to be running on Disney Plus without that paywall on December 24th. Which I think is really great. Uh, you know, uh, I'm just glad that they put it out in the theaters. You know, I wound up watching Luca on Disney Plus and uh, from Pixar. And I, I have to tell you, it's a beautiful, beautiful movie. Oh, great. And, and really well done. It's gorgeous looking. I, I just wish I had a chance to have seen that on the big screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same, same here. Luca is beautiful. I agree with you 100%. And there's so many movies I wish we, you know, we've seen during this pandemic era, if you will, that I wish we saw on the big screen. Yeah, it's just, yeah. I feel I you feel know, like they need to go back and and uh, run it again, just so. <laughs> yeah, I know. Really. Let's let's put it out on the big screen because I know there there's some people that want to see Black Widow too. Yeah, yeah. I I, I will say uh, since we're talking about little screens. 
and the streaming, you know, not so little, obviously, if you have a big flat panel. But uh, the one thing I and I mentioned this to you before we we got on the air here, uh, Al John, uh, I watched Snoopy presents Old Anxiety. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. and, and it, it was directed by Clay Cadis who was a Disney animator. Uh, he worked, worked at Walt Disney Animation Studios. And then he went on to direct, um, oh, what was the uh, Angry Birds film? He yes. directed the Angry Birds film. But he directed this uh, Snoopy Presents Old Lang Syme. Um, and I have to tell you, watch this. It's on Apple+. Plus. It is a wonderful wonderful holiday short in, in terms of, you know, uh, a Charlie Brown Christmas, you know, it's, it's sort of in that league. And I have to say it is beautifully produced. I mean, the production value is absolutely incredible. The characters are spot on to the comic strip. Uh, and I'll tell you one thing, Charles Schultz has to be smiling down from heaven on this one because it's absolutely beautiful looking and beautifully animated. And the art direction is off the charts. The Clay Cadis really raised the bar on this one. That's good to know. I mean, I see the promo for it on Apple TV. Um, in fact, you can start a free trial if you you wish. You know, it's seven days for free, so you might as well and check this out. But it harkens back to the original televised specials they used to have in terms of the art. I was I was thinking maybe it would go for more of the more you know CGI look, right? If you will, um, but it does have that that nice two D. Kind of hand well, you know, b- it. believe it or not, it is a CG short, but right. it doesn't look it. It, it doesn't looks, look it, it right. It, it, right. it looks hand drawn. So, I mean, it's beautifully executed by the team at Wild Brain up in Canada, yeah. and and I have to tell you, just beautifully done, and it's worth watching. So, go to Apple Plus, watch uh, the. Snoopy presents and they have all of the Charlie Brown specials. So, you know, it wouldn't be the holidays with the, without watching uh, Charlie Brown's Christmas. Right on. I like it. I like it a lot. All right. exactly. that, was, that was my That's little, uh, my, my, my little aside there. Okay. But no, we it's get perfect. Back to the news. no, no, it's perfect. You know, and, uh, and I, it's so, so check out uh, Snoopy presents all the design and then also Encanto coming out uh, at the end of the month, as well as January 12th Eternals. So, yeah. And I did, Chris and I, did see Eternals already, but uh, you'll be able to see it too, uh, streaming on Disney Plus on January 12th. That's another press release. And 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 let us know exactly how you feel about all of the films we're talking about um, on Facebook as well. Let us know. Keep that discussion going. Um, now, how about this, Dave? Have you seen the uh, promo for West Side Story at all? Have you I, seen it? I did. And in fact, the, um, uh, the last time I was at an IMAX uh, theater, which was just a few weeks ago, uh, I saw the trailer for West Side Story. Now, I have to I have to tell you something. I've seen West Side Story, the original film. I've seen it on Broadway. Uh, I, I saw a rehearsal of the latest Broadway show before the pandemic hit. Uh, and I have to tell you, you know, it's a great story. It's a great musical. And I thought when I first heard Steven Spielberg was doing West Side Story as a film, I was like, uh-oh, I'm not sure I'm going to like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I saw the trailer for this, Al John, and it will, it, it's beautiful. Yeah. It's beautifully yeah. shot. It's beautifully reimagined. And it's, it, it's cast. I mean, the cast is incredible. So I'm actually going to see it. Um, and we can talk about it next week, but I'm going to see it this afternoon. Well, that's great. 
I'm, I'm hoping that Kristen and I get an opportunity to see West Side Story. I'm, I'm pushing her because I love West Side Story. I believe it or not, Dave, I was an all-state baritone uh, singer when I was when I was in high school. And I sang West Side Story songs and stuff from Bye Bye Birdie and all kinds of stuff, you know, growing up. And so yeah. this is really cool. But here, here's here's a little clip of um, David Alvarez, star of the uh, of Steven Spielberg's West Side Story, talking about inclusion. Check this out. Now let's talk about little kids looking at the poster, seeing the movie, going, "He looks like me." How much does that? How much does that mean to you? That means the world to me, especially because, you know, Steven Spielberg kind of gave us that voice, gave us that chance to to speak our truth and to really show the world what, what the struggles that we've been going through. And I think it's revolutionary what Steven Spielberg has done. He's given us a voice and I think it's going to change the industry for good. You know? I think it's I think it's great for one. Um, talking about the representation and Rita Moreno uh, playing Anita in the original West Side Story was great. Rita Moreno was one of my favorite mm-hmm. actresses growing up, of course, you know, being in a lot of, uh, you know. Everyone on this planet has a dream. The question is how far you're willing to go to make it come true. Take Lewis, for example. All right, Lewis, knock him dead. That was a figure of speech. Please don't kill anyone. All his life, Lewis's dream was to find the family he never knew. I know, they're out there. But the funny thing about chasing dreams is that no one can do it on their own. What are you doing up here? Desperate times call for desperate measures. And the journey will always take you places you never imagined. What is this? Where are we going? To the future! This spring, the first visitor to the future will discover a strange new world and a family. Lewis, meet the Robinsons. That's even stranger. Why is your dog wearing glasses? Oh, because his insurance won't pay for contacts. Frogs? Genetically enhanced frogs. And his only way home... I have to find my family. We'll help you, kid. Is about to be stolen <laughs> by a guy who gives evil a bad name. What the? You are now under my control. I am now under your control. Don't repeat everything I say. You won't repeat everything you say. This may be harder than I thought. From Walt Disney Pictures. If I had a family, I'd want them to be just like you. You have to go back to your own time. When it comes to adventure. Ah! Dude, I can't take you seriously in that hat. When it comes to family. I think my wife Lucille's baking cookies. Bake them cookies, Lucille! When it comes to comedy. I've got the caffeine patch! You can stay awake for days with no side effects. Ah! Sorry. There's no time like the future. Now my slave, seize the boy! Why aren't you seizing the boy? Meet the Robinsons. Get it off! Get it off! Skull Rock Podcast. Interview time. Well, Al, John, as we promised our audience, uh, we've got another fantastic guest joining us. It's Steve Anderson, who is a storyboard artist, uh, a screenwriter, a voice actor, 
and a film director and really animation director of note here, my friends, because he directed Meet the Robinsons and the 2011 Winnie the Pooh he co-directed with another great guy, Don Hall. Uh, Steve, welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. Thanks, Dave and John. Great to be here. Our, nice our studio audience is going wild, as you yeah. can hear. <laughs> Thank I, you, everybody. I, I, they constantly are doing this. Calm down, everybody. Calm down. <laughs> Checks in the mail. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, how you been? Everything good? Everything's good. Yep. Hanging in there and having fun. Great. It's great to have you on. And, and I, I always like to ask our guests uh, uh, how they got started in the business, because uh, I know you went to Cal Arts, so you're a fellow Cal Arshan, as yes, we like to true. call ourselves. Um, how, how did you like, you know, how did you get into animation? How did you know you wanted to get into this world? Uh, you know, I, I uh, grew up on a strict diet of uh, Disney movies. Uh, and so particularly animation, obviously. And there was something about Disney movies that made me want to go home and draw. I don't quite know what it was. I've often over the years tried to figure it out. I think a lot of it had to do with acting the eyes of Disney characters. There was something so captivating to me about that. And I wanted to go home and try to capture that on paper, try to try to, you know, replicate those those great expressions and all the acting and all the, you know, the great character moments of Disney animation. So that kicked off my love of drawing. And uh, and when I realized what an animator was or a storyboard artist, like people actually made these things. I said, that's what I got to do with my life. I got to do that. And, and, and so I take it you were one of those guys in high school who was always drawing cartoons. Yes. Uh, the margins of my notes uh, were probably 80% draw, cartoon drawings and 20% notes. <laughs> <laughs> I like my that ratio. Pencil would not stop. <laughs> and, and, and so how did you find out about CalArts? And, uh, and, and and by the way, when I asked that question, did you have other choices? I'm I'm curious to know. Like you know, some people said no. I heard about Cal Arts, and I that was the only place I was going to go. But I, you know, there's other folks that looked at other schools. So how about you? I had no idea what I was going to do for college uh, to learn animation. I I thought I was going to have to maybe do a fine arts degree, or I was thinking about something like maybe architecture or something that was kind of art related, but. I had no idea how to get an animation until one day uh, in the mail arrived our latest issue of Disney News Magazine, which was a, a magazine from like the 70s. If you're members of the <clears throat> what at the time was called the Disney Vacation Club, you got a subscription to this magazine called Disney News. And there was an article in there about this school, California Institute of the Arts, that had an animation program all these pictures of people drawing cartoons and stuff. And I almost fell off my chair. I was like, well, I got to, there, there is an animation school. Do you understand this mom, dad, there's a place where you can go to learn this thing called animation. So um, it, I wrote to CalArts, I got information. And then when I was, when I graduated, I applied and was very fortunate to, uh, to get in on my first try. I would have just kept applying over and over if I hadn't, but um there was no other place to go for me once I learned about CalArts. And where were you coming from? Where did you go to high school? Uh, I was in Plano, Texas, uh, just Plano. a suburb of Dallas. Um, it sounds like a really dinky little tumbleweed town, but it's actually it was actually part of a big metroplex of of uh, cities that that uh, surrounded Dallas. So 
Um, so that's where I learned about CalArts. Wow. And, and, and so, uh, yeah, and, and one of the things I, I want our audience to understand is that CalArts, even to this day, um, only accepts 30 students each year into their animation program. And, and so it is a big deal for when you apply to the school for you to get accepted the first time through. I mean, a lot of, there's a lot of people who have applied multiple times before they get accepted. And, and when they, you know, apply and don't get in, they usually get a nice letter that says you need to do these kinds of things to improve your portfolio. Um, so you got in you know, first time through. Now, the big question is, how many years did you spend at CalArts? Because most of the time, animation students are plucked out of the program, you know, second, third year, right? Yeah. Um, well, I was there for a total of three years. Uh, I got my first job after... Um, my second year, the summer after my second year, uh, I got a job at a studio called Hyperion Animation, which um, doesn't exist anymore, but uh, it was for a movie called Rover Dangerfield. Yeah. Um, the classic film. I, I remember uh, that. Who, who directed the that? Early 90s. Uh, Jim George and Bob Seeley were the oh, directors. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, lots of really high profile supervising animators like uh, Bruce Smith and Matt O'Callaghan. Franz Vischer was my supervising animator and mentor. Um, uh, so I worked at uh, Hyperion for the summer and then a little bit into my third year, um, then I went back to CalArts full-time, finished that, and then back to Hyperion after my third year and stayed there for about four years. Yeah, and, and Hyperion was started by a former Disney executive. It was, yeah. Tom Wilhite, uh, yeah. who used to be the VP of of motion pictures and TV at, at uh, Disney, starting in 79, I think is when he yeah. started and, that role through like 83. Yeah, and then he left and he set up Hyperion uh, Films. And uh, what's, what's notable about, about Tom Wilhite is, is that he was the one that gave uh, Tim Burton his break. Uh, he gave Tim uh, development money to do uh, Vincent, uh, the little stop motion short, uh, and also uh, f- uh, put into production uh, Frankenweenie uh, with Tim. Yeah. Uh, and so the original uh, half hour black and white live action uh, Frankenweenie, not the the later stop motion version of it. But yeah, so Tom, Tom started Hyperion Films and they did a lot of stuff, in, including Brave Little Toaster Films, right? So yeah. you worked on a couple of the offshoots of Brave Little Toaster, right? Or- uh, yeah, I, I did some storyboarding on, on some of the sequels. Um, Brave Little Toaster Goes to Mars and the Brave Little Toaster to the Rescue. The Rescue, yes. Um, <laughs> yep, worked a short period of time, but just did, did some stuff on that. Um, and, and now you were doing animation on Rover Dangerfield. How did you get into storyboarding? Well, I I animated on Rover Dangerfield and then the next film, Bay Bay's Kids. And uh, and that was directed I, that, that was directed by Bruce Smith, right? And that was Bruce yeah. Smith. Yep. yep. Another Cal Arshan, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so I and I very quickly realized that animation was not my strong. Like being an animator was not my strong suit. Um, I really struggled with the technical aspects of animation. My volumes were constantly like grow. Like you know, characters' heads were like wobbling back and forth and animating things in perspective and 
just all that technical stuff. I liked thumbnailing my poses and then roughing out the extremes. And then that was about where my interest ended because having to do all the technical stuff to make it come to life just was not something I, I had interest in or was really good at. The good news was the timing coincided with um, Hyperion moving into television animation and they um, started up uh, a television series called the Itsy Bitsy Spider for the USA Network and Paramount. Uh-huh. And they said, why don't you, why don't you storyboard on this show? Yeah. So I did my first storyboards and that was really where I started realizing, okay, I like this stuff. I like storyboarding better. I like the big picture aspects of story writing, um, that kind of thing. And then that led to, um, uh, an opening on the show for a director and they said, we'd like you to step into that role. So I was shocked and thrilled to be directing on, uh, on, on the, the TV show. That, that's awesome. Uh, now who else was involved? I think Matt O'Callaghan, wasn't he? Matt uh, created the show. Yeah. Um, he had directed a short called the It's a Bitsy Spider, the same characters that was on the front of Bebe's kids. Uh-huh. And then Hyperion sold a series spun off from that short. So Matt was the show creator. And then there was myself and a guy named Mike Mitchell, who was the other director. Mike has gone on to do, to be a big live action director. He's also done, he did Shrek, he did one of the Shrek films, uh, SpongeBob film, but he also directed uh, live action movies like Sky High and uh, Deuce Bigelow, Male Gigolo. Um, so, uh, but he, and he, we were colleagues, uh, at CalArts as well. So we knew each other. Um, so we were the two directors on the show. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it's amazing, uh, how many, how many, uh, directors started out in animation and then, uh, switched over into live action, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it really is pretty amazing. I mean, obviously Tim Burton, but, uh, you got people, uh, uh, like Brad Bird and, uh, I mean, the list goes on, yeah. on, on and on and on you know? Yeah, for sure. So, uh, and and so from Hyperion, how did you get to Disney? So then, uh, I, well, so one of the people I met at Hyperion, um, was Kevin Lima, who was one of the directors of Tarzan ultimately. Um, Kevin had, at the time I met Kevin in the early nineties at Hyperion, he had left Disney feature animation after having done a lot of designs and storyboards and that kind of stuff, because he wanted to be a director. So he was developing some films to direct at Hyperion. And uh, I, I, he and I kind of clicked and we, we became friends and he kept encouraging me to, to do storyboards. And he said, when, if, whenever one of these movies goes, you can be a storyboard artist on this movie. Unfortunately, none of those movies ever went. <laughs> and Kevin ended up leaving and going to do the Goofy movie at uh, Disney television. Right. So then when he got, when he was done with the Goofy movie and he was moving on to Tarzan, he invited me to come over and storyboard on that film with him, himself and Chris Buck uh, in the director seat. Chris Buck was one of my animation teachers at CalArts. So knowing both of those um, helped again, open that door for me to come to, to Disney and storyboard on Tarzan. Wow. Wow. Yeah, and, and, cool. and, and, and so you started storyboarding on, on Tarzan. Then you went on to Emperor's New Groove, uh, which I think Mark Dindle was one of the directors, right? Who was the other yep. director? Uh, Will Finn, right? 
No, uh, no, it was just Mark. It was well, just that Mark. Was, that was, you know, started as Kingdom of the Sun. With right, right, with Roger, right. Um, we, and, we, and yeah, we had Roger on the show, and we actually talked quite a bit about his vision of Kingdom of the Sun yeah. because I remember all the visual development artwork in the hallways and stuff. It was just a beautiful looking movie. Yeah. Uh, I, I would have loved, you know, I, I, I like Emperor's New Group, but I would have loved to have seen Kingdom of the Sun as well yeah. because it was just a, you know, a gorgeous looking movie. Yeah, so, I wish there was a world where they both existed because <laughs> I think. I think they would be so different from each other that they could coexist. <laughs> yes. Yes, you know? absolutely. Um, yeah. Cause, cause I agree. Rogers, Rogers uh, film would have been amazing, but yeah. so I was very sad about all that stuff, but I know, I know, um, but you know, we, we had a great conversation about it and Roger was very, uh, you know, very forthcoming with, with what, what happened and everything, but you know, that that's the nature of animation. I mean, not everything gets made. There's plenty of projects that get developed and even Disney has a long history of it, by the way way where projects are developed and they get shelved i mean you know little mermaid was being developed in the 1940s and it was shelved mm -hmm. and it wasn't until the early 80s that it got traction and the same with uh uh, uh the snow queen uh yeah. which ultimately became frozen i mean that was being developed in the 40s and and it got picked up by a couple of directors early in the 2000s and they did some work on it and they got shelved again. And then another set of directors came in and finally got some traction. So, I mean, that's just yeah. the way of the world, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. It really is. It, it fluctuates like that. Yeah. And, and so you did Emperor's New Groove and then you went on to board on Brother Bear, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, with Aaron Blaze and Bob. Uh, and Bob Walker, yeah. Bob Walker. Uh, we had Aaron on the show as well. We get all the great directors, don't we? <laughs> don't we, Al John? I mean, it's pretty impressive impressive it i have to say most for this little this little podcast we, we've got some really cool talent awesome. including yourself uh steve Thanks. um how did uh, tell us how meet the robinsons came about because this is a very personal project for you and i have to say yeah. before you even launch into that steve meet the robinsons is the my wife and i is one of our favorite films i have to tell oh, you I'm so happy we, to that. we love it <laughs> we watch it every year and it is a heartwarming. I mean, you hear this all the time, but from a real fan, it is a heartwarming uh, film. And we and, love Bowler Hat Guy. We just wanted to say. And, that. and, and by the way, I do think that it's it, it's personal for you too, uh, Al John. Yeah. Oh, because, yeah. be, because you you guys are adopting a couple of children. That's oh, absolutely that absolutely correct. Yes, you're yeah. They're they're wonderful. right in the middle of it. He, he's right. got a, a beautiful little boy and little girl. That's right. Oh, congratulations. I'm so Thanks. happy to hear that. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate it. Now, now let's yeah. let's find out the real deal on this. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah, so, so that's a good segue into telling us why was this project so personal to you? How did it come about and yeah. how did you become the director of it? Well, uh, I had so uh, on Emperor's New Groove and Brother Bear, I was I was uh, this I had a story on both of those films um, and that was enough for the studio to give me a shot at developing something as a director. I had expressed interest um, a few years prior and they said, well, do some leadership roles and see how it goes. And they felt good with um, trusting me with this project. When I finished Brother Bear, uh, they handed me this script for this film called A Day with Wilbur Robinson, um, based on this book by William Joyce. And they said, what we want to do is something really different. We want to, we have a script that we like. We want to just put together a storyboard team and an editorial team 
storyboard the whole thing all the way through, screen it and see if we want to make it or not before we spend any money on actual production. So I was very excited about the possibility. Um, I read the script and uh, the script had this aspect to the main character, which was not in the original Bill Joyce book, um, that uh, the main character was uh, an orphan in an orphanage and he was looking to get adopted. And the big question, the burning question in his mind was ultimately, who is my birth mother and why did she give me up? And so reading that was like kind of a crazy thing because I was adopted. Um, I was not in an orphanage. I was adopted as an infant. So slightly different specifics from the character of Lewis. But asking those questions about where I came from uh, completely related to this kid. I'd been doing that since I was, since I could remember. Um, and, uh, and so I went back to, to the folks in development at the time. And I said, you don't understand <laughs> this, you know, they had no idea that, that, that I had this connection to the material like I did. And I said, you know, I have to do this. There's no way I can't do this. And, uh, and in fact, I would love to be able to bring more of that, to the film because there was it was in there but it wasn't quite as much as as was is in the final film um that emotional through line um and so they said great let's do it and then about a year later we screened the whole movie on reels and they said let's make it that it was that easy huh yeah totally it was just like that it's amazing (laughs) so easy and then the real the real fun began once we actually made it well let me ask you let me ask you this though when you screened all the storyboards of the film how how many people worked on the storyboarding there must have been a small group of you right yeah we had a very small team in fact uh there was there was uh three storyboard artists there was our head of story don hall and there was myself so we had a, a total of five people um, and it stayed that way through the whole, we had a few people come on and help us out from, from yeah. you know, every now and then, but sure. it pretty much stayed those five people through the whole, um, evolution of the project. Um, so that was really neat because everybody just owned the film. It was, yeah. we had such a tight group. Um, we were all so like-minded and we were all really passionate about telling the story. So that was and, cool. And, and, and when you got the reels up and they said, yeah, let's make this movie, there was probably a boatload of notes too, right? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> there <laughs> always is, right? I mean, there's always, you know, a ton of notes at those types of screenings where you had to go in and then tear the film apart and put it back together, right? hundred percent. And then there was the added, uh, the added issue of, okay, now you're going to go make the movie but the movie that you storyboarded is already too expensive for the financial box we want you to be in. <laughs> right. So now let we have to figure out how to actually make it for this particular cost um, uh, because it was the, the intent for the film was it should be a smaller film, um, you know, a little bit, not, not like on the scale of, of, you know, uh, uh, a Lion King or, or an Atlantis or something like that. Yeah, but, but this also was one of the early CG films, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And, and, and so that, that they were, you know, with all the promises of CG saving money, it was the opposite, yeah. right? Because from film to film, uh, the cost spiraled up. Oh yeah. And, and 
the studio had done, you know, the dinosaurs and dinosaur, and they were in the middle of Chicken Little at the time, but there had never been uh, human anim- human characters right. from Disney animation in in CG. So there was all that to 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 deal with, and you know, the skin and the growing hair and a little more of a natural lighting. You know, Chicken Little had more cartoony kind of approach to it. We were trying to do something more natural um, uh, with the lighting. So, yeah, exactly. You can't you can't scrimp uh, or cut corners when you're doing that kind of thing, um, right? For the betterment of the movie, you know. Yeah, and and, and for just for our audience, uh, and when you're talking about humanoid characters and hair and things like that, that was still. I mean, we're talking early two thousands. You know, two thousand five, two thousand six. The movie was released in two thousand seven. So you're still talking about. Um, you know, a lot of R and D work was still being done to to do cloth and human characters and skin and you know all of those kinds of things. A lot of stuff was being developed, and especially at Disney Animation, they were doing a lot of their, what are known as plugins, their own uh, uh, software code to be able to do some of these things that were add ons to the Maya software package that was being used uh, uh, at the company. And so, you know, it, it, it was expensive. I mean, the bottom line was, is it was, it was expensive. So I, I can imagine that you were going in and, and trying to cut stuff back. And, yeah. I, and, and, and that's got to be like character footage and uh, certain types of effects and uh, how many locations you're going to have and all of that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and how to do something like uh, the, the really elaborate, city of the future in a, in a very contained way. Like, okay, how can we still get the visual bang for a buck, but, but, you know, keep it manageable. And so, yeah, it was just, it was all kind of prioritizing and finding ways to simplify, get the same effect, but achieve it with simpler means, which actually, frankly, I kind of, I I find that really actually kind of stimulating, you know, uh, how to, I feel like creativity actually works better when you have uh, parameters. Yeah. When you have constraints. Yeah. If, if we had like unlimited cash and unlimited time, we'd probably still be making the movie because you just, you just never, you know, you, you, you need deadlines, you need limitations. And then it makes you just that more, much more creative within that space. So I think ultimately it was difficult. Yeah. And it was challenging, but. Um, we, it led to a lot of really great creative solutions to to our uh, to make the movie. And, and and was there any one thing like a sequence or something that you loved that you had to cut out? Because you know, in writing, mm-hmm. there's always the, the there's that expression you have to kill your darlings. You know, things that you're in love with. Sometimes you just have to cut them. You know, and just say I, it it doesn't belong, and we have to get rid of it. Is there anything in the movie that you felt like, gosh, I, if I ever had the opportunity, I'd love to go in and add that sequence back in. Yeah, I think uh, for me, the first thing that popped into my head is just the way we we open the movie and the way we set up Lewis. I think I think what's in there works. I think we've done a better job in pre- some previous versions, um, setting up the character and getting the audience really engaged with with Lewis and his story. Um, uh, I kind of like previous versions of that. 
that said, I will say that for the most part, the movie that we made is kind of pretty similar to the movie that we started off, off with. We were able to protect the theme of the film. We were able to protect the, the general uh, structure and the, the emotional story. Um, execution things obviously changed and I think I think um, so much of that was for the better um, but I think it was it's that's kind of the and again not that the beginning of the film as it stands doesn't work um, I just think we had some more interesting ways of getting into it in some previous versions yeah yeah where, where did the frogs come in <laughs> how did that whole thing come about? And the reason why I ask, I just kind of looked up at the top of my desk and I have one of the frog maquettes in there, you know, in, in his suit with his thin black tie, Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and that was a gift that was given out to, uh, to all of us uh, at Walt Disney animation studios, whether you worked on the film or not, you got a, you got one of those. Yeah, it, uh, they they were an aspect of the original um, children's book from from William Joyce. The original book is doesn't have time travel. It doesn't have the adoption angle. Uh -huh. um, it's simply a kid who goes and visits his friend Wilbur Robinson's house, sleeps over, spends the night, and his family is really bizarre, and they've just got all kinds of crazy kooky. It's sort of sort of like. Uh, you know, somebody visiting the monsters or something, but rather than it being scary, spooky stuff, it's really futuristic technological stuff. They're, they're eccentric. And, and they're, stuff. they're a very eccentric family, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. And so one of the things in the in the book is that uh, Wilbur's mother has a, a band of singing frogs. <laughs> and we thought, well, that's fun. Let's put that in the movie. And, and there's a little <laughs> bit of a sort of rat pack quality to them, right? Yeah, that kind I, of I evolved that. just as that's more from the story <laughs> side of things. But for some reason, it just felt like it just felt like that, you know, hey, Frankie, how you doing there, buddy? You know, kind of a thing. And <laughs> well, you see, your, your, your frogs are a step up because they all drink martinis, you know, and, and a glass right. whole, <laughs> the whole rat pack thing versus, you know, the Budweiser frogs, which, you know, they sit around and drink Bud, you know. So right. I, I'm down yes. with the martinis. Uh, much more yeah. refined. Yes, yes, much more refined. And the ties. I mean, the suit and tie. Come on. <laughs> yeah. And, and why was that chosen? Let me ask you this. Why was that chosen as, as the gift? Um, I, you know, I can't remember. I think it was just cause it was fun. <laughs> That's a really good question. That was that, that one escapes me. I can't remember our conversations for that. <laughs> I don't know why it wasn't one of the main characters. No, that, that, I, I think it's perfectly fine. I mean, I, I, like I said, I don't have a lot of things on my desk, but that's one of them, <laughs> you know, and, and you know how much stuff we've been given over the years at, at Disney animation, you know? So, you know, some of the stuff is in boxes in the garage, but that is one thing I, I always got a kick out of when I opened up the box, I was like, Brilliant. I love it. You yeah, know? I think we need singing to have a singing frog. Yeah, we need to have uh, the singing frog, maquettes, action figures, and, and little tiny T-Rex there as well. Actually, you know, I got to tell you, though, the, the 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 frogs again, you know, Al John and I have had this conversation on and off since we started this uh, podcast. But uh, they're, they're secondary characters in films that uh, are just brilliant and uh, like 
deserved to be expanded and you can mm-hmm. do more with it. I always thought the frogs in Meet the Robinsons, just like, you know, uh, the lizard in uh, uh, Rescuers Down Under, <laughs> Frank the Lizard, you know, I, I mean, they're, you know, Pumba and Timon from Lion King. They have done a lot with Pumba and Timon, but I mean, the frogs. I mean, they were just great characters. I mean, you could you could do a a, a, a sh, you know a short series with them. You know, yeah, I mean, you totally seriously. could. Yeah, You're right. <laughs> the whole the whole uh, uh, underworld of frogs at the Robinson House. Or whatever. <laughs> I know. It really <laughs> should they, they should make it. They should make a uh, appearance in the next Zootopia in the background. That's what that would be amazing, right? There you go. There you go. Huh. I'll I'll pitch it. Let's go. Okay. Let's go. Let's do yeah. it. <laughs> now, now, you know, while you were working on Meet the Robinsons, I mean, when you first took on the project, you you actually you're credited as a writer on the screenplay. Yeah, we um, we we kind of approached it where we did have a writer. Michelle Spitz was our um, our writer who came on uh, once we got the green light to start boarding, um, and we all just wrote together uh storyboard artists would we would take we would i would talk through sequences uh and say you go do that sequence you go do that sequence and there wouldn't be pages so story artists would just write and then michelle would uh, there was one point i remember you know storyboard artists were like uh writing and boarding act one michelle was taking the second half of the movie and writing pages then when story got to that midpoint we swapped and they got, they took her pages and started boarding and she went back and kind of punched up their writing. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just a, a real, um, really collaborative experience like that. And, and everybody just, everybody just created their own material. Um, so it was really fun. And I'm, uh, you know, I'm curious because, again, I think the audience isn't aware, like when you see uh, screen credits as writer, uh, right, there, there's a bunch of people writing. And if you do enough writing, you're going to get uh, a screen credit as the screenplay is by. Um, and, yeah. and, and, and so these are very collaborative and you're constantly going over those lines and you're punching them up and you're, you're making you know, little changes here and there uh, to add humor or, you know, drama or whatever, uh, make it crisper. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, for sure. And, and it was really important to me that um, the whole team got writing credit because the whole team wrote the movie together, big picture, and the whole team wrote word, you know, the words that are being spoken and the stuff that's happening I can, I could go through and tell you, oh, that story artist wrote that sequence and Michelle wrote that sequence and I wrote that sequence. And I mean, so I felt that it was really, it was very important for myself and Dorothy McKim, the producer of the film, that the whole team got writing credit because that's, that was the truest um, expression of their contribution. Right. I mean, they deserve the credit. Yeah. You know, and, and, and is that, was that the first time? I don't think it was the first time you were writing because you did some writing as a story artist on Tarzan, right? Yeah. I, I, um, yeah. I did some writing on Tarzan um, on Groove as well. Um, uh, you know, not, not officially as a writer, but right. um, as is often the case, like we just talked about, 
there were times, particularly on Tarzan, starting so early on the project, yeah, before there were writers, um, where directors would just say, "We have this moment, go explore it. Um, we want we want it to start here and we want it to end here, story wise." Yeah. Um, here's the setup. Go explore what could happen. And some some story artists will approach it by just drawing, you know, maybe drawing some beats, like be, you know, doing like story vignettes to kind of plot sure. that out. I I like to just start writing stuff and actually write dialogue and yeah. write the moment. Um, so that that kind of continued on whenever I got the opportunity, I would I would write stuff like that. You know, you mentioned beats. Um, did, did you know there there is something called a beat board uh, that that uh, is done with you know very early on with uh, development of a project? Did you guys do a beat board initially for Meet the Robinsons? We did. We did. I'm trying to think. Did we actually draw? Did we do drawings, or did we just? It might have just been a. A written thing, right? You know, and when I mean, I want you to explain what the beat board is. I, I mean, I can certainly jump in and do a, a you know, a half baked explanation, but, but I know you can do an explanation so the audience understands what a beat board is because it really does come like very early in a project. It's sort of when you're first sort of toying with the idea of like, oh, you know, let's look at this book by William Joyce and say, oh, you know, we we should be able to do this and we could do it. And you have one storyboard in your, so explain that. Yeah, so it's this really great tool, um, gosh, that had been, has been used at Disney Animation for, I don't know how long it's been, but it's, it's, Back in the old days, um, uh, they did beat boards for their films. And it's really taking like anywhere between like the main 15 to 20 sequences of your film and separating those into a column uh, on a board. And usually at, at the top of the column is a drawing, some kind of illustration that that um, visualizes this particular sequence or beat. Yeah. There's usually a descriptive card underneath it, or maybe several that might just give a brief description um, of that particular moment. And it's this great tool so that when you stand back, you can see your whole film uh, kind of in snapshot form. It might be like two or three of those, you know, wooden framed storyboards, tops, Um but you can look at it and see your film at a glance um, as opposed to storyboarding, which then you're getting into all the different shots and continuity and, and, you know, really flushing out the moments. This is this great overview of your film. And, and, and you would, would you pitch that to the executives? Yeah. But, yeah. It was, I mean, Tarzan did one groove. We did one brother bear. We did one. And those, and there were illustrated beat boards as well. Um, I think the reason we didn't do them on Robinson's was because the script had already been written. And, and you, we it were, was based on existing material too. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it was more of a, of a pitch tool just to kind of say, here's what we want to do for the next screening. Yeah. Um, um, but yes, those were always used as, as pitch tools and they still are today. People still do, um, those kind of beat boards, not always, uh, visual beat boards, but definitely the, um, written beat boards for sure. Outline yeah. boards. Yeah. 
And uh, we, uh, Al John, we have a, a listener question. Yes, we do. Um, one of our regulars, Richard Dewberry, says, Meet the Robinsons is my favorite sleeper Disney movie. I've always thought the Robinsons could be a complimentary addition to the Carousel of Progress with its time travel uh. and keep moving forward themes. If you could spearhead a Robinson's attraction at the Disney park, what would you envision? Oh that's man, a, that's a, that's an interesting. We're putting Steve on the spot for this question. We say, wow. <laughs> I mean, uh, I feel like it would be some kind of of uh, time travel ride. I feel like it would be, you know, sitting in one of those one of the time machines, maybe the little red time machine from the movie, and and you would be you would be going in. Back and forth in time, I guess. Maybe, maybe a take on Spaceship Earth, perhaps. That could be. I mean, I love Disney dark rides. Yeah, to do sure. a dark ride of the movie would be like a dream come true. <laughs> it's like the it's like the Ford Magic Skyway from the yeah, yeah, yeah. sixty four sixty five uh, yeah. uh, World's Fair. You know, well, he yeah, does or something it. kind of World's Fairy would be neat. Like, you know, we talked we we used. Um, images from that World's Fair, from Epcot, from kind of the the, the white and blue seventies Tomorrowland, yeah. from Disneyland as inspiration for our future cities. So um, definitely loved having that kind of stuff in the DNA of the movie. So something World's Fair like would be neat. Yeah. Well, what was your thought on, on on trying to design uh, a futuristic city? You know, because because that's always a, a bit of a trap, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, what I liked about our film, um, and this is sort of a, I'm making kind of a blanket statement here, but for the most part, it seems like when films go into the future, they tend to be a bleak future. Um, or at least the, 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 the films that are really notable, like let's say, you know, alien Alien. or blade runner or those kind of films, it's that real, uh, lived in kind of gritty, uh, dystopian future. I liked that we were creating a future that was more hopeful and positive. So we just talked a lot about, about green, about blue skies. Let's get vegetation in there. So it's not just industrial. It's not just buildings. It's, I mean, to be totally nerdy, it's very much, it really is very much the, the feeling of Walt Disney's um, aspirations for what right. Epcot was going to originally be that kind of city, that wonderful, positive future that he saw. It was really, you know, we, we really did want to channel that feeling. I, I mean, that that's really what it was. It, I mean, it, it, you know, Walt was always aspirational and positive and visionary, uh, but he also struggled with Tomorrowland. Mm-hmm. You know, he, I, I think he always felt like, you know, uh, the trouble with Tomorrowland was it was yesterday land by the time <laughs> he got it built, you know? Right. And, and so, and, and so I always, and, and I agree with you, like a lot of uh, films that come out are dystopian and, you know, it's a bleak future as opposed to, you know, uh, unless you go into like a Star Trek uh, yeah. where there, where, where there's this sort of almost utopian type of, uh, you know, they've solved the problem of world hunger and solved the problem of universal incomes and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, it was really the George Lucas effect when you think about it, because everybody was very much in that uh, hopeful, bright, clean, futuristic look until Star Wars came out. And then it wasn't necessarily yeah. bleak. It was very lived in. And, yeah. then, and it only got bleak when uh, when James Cameron got his hands on Alien. But um, but I have to say, I have, I have to say that. So what is behind the reasoning of having the photo of Nikola Tesla in the orphanage? Yeah. And I had read I had somewhere during the production, I read some things about Tesla and it was, I was so taken by how quirky he was, particularly later in life. Um, And it felt very, he felt very Robinson like, you know, the sort of quirkiness. And I started thinking of, well, there's a moment in the film where at the very beginning where Lewis is doing his invention and he steps, steps back and he kind of gets lost in thought and then Goob wakes him up with the air horn. And I had read something about Tesla later, later in life, he was living in a hotel. Um, and the, the um, hotel staff would come in to his room to deliver his food. And he would just be sitting there frozen, just like staring who knows where. And I thought, oh, that's kind of a funny thing. What if Lewis does that just as a, as a quirk? So then it led to, well, let's put, let's put a picture of Tesla in there just as a, a nod to that <laughs> the kind of eccentric, quirky um, science guy that, that he was and that maybe Lewis would turn out to be. That's great. And, uh, that's really cool. That's a cool insight because I, I, didn't, I didn't think that was um, – now that knowing that that's Nikola Tesla in there, it all makes sense. <laughs> Yeah, sorry about that. No, no, a lot no, of people have 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 seen, he, and he does look very much like Walt Disney, kind of in the background. So, but, it, but it those are the, those are the fun little Easter eggs uh, that are hidden in some of the Disney films. Uh, yeah. Were there any other things that you guys put into the film? Uh, that um, you could, you could tell us for tell our audience for the first time. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, we did. This might not be too much of a discovery. That maybe it's obvious, but we uh, another one of William Joyce's. Um, famous children's books was called dinosaur bob which is about this really giant this giant green brontosaurus that um befriends a family and uh so the mascot for the team that uh that goob um little mikey goobian lewis's roommate plays for uh is their team of the dinos and their mascot is a big giant green brontosaurus so that was a nod to bill's also, the elementary school is called Joyce Williams Elementary. So, <laughs> William Joyce, Joyce Williams. Yeah, sure, sure. I love it. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, those were two that popped in my head. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> you know, I, I think I think I don't think there's a Disney film that doesn't have some some little personal fun things that the artist did yeah. uh, uh, hidden in them. Uh, you know, I I can think of many off the top of my head. Yeah. So uh, it, it's it's nice to nice to see that you've continued it with the Meet the Robinsons film. Yeah, I think it, animation takes so long. I think it, it's hard not to start thinking. Hmm. We have time. What if we threw this little thing in there? Like you, you actually have time to do it, you know. So yeah. <laughs> I think it's so and, easy and, to and, do. And, and that's the that's the beauty of a lot of these films is that they're layered, you know, where you go back and you watch these films multiple times and you still are, you know, picking up on things that you hadn't seen in the previous viewing. Yeah. Of of the film. So yeah. 
Yeah, I, I think that's that's so awesome. And, and so you finished Meet the Robinsons, and uh, it was released to theaters, and the reception was in your mind. Uh, it was it was kind of mixed. Um, I think it was just to be totally honest. I think it was a time where uh, Disney's reputation was a little uh, mixed. You know, Yeah, I was going to just say, Steve, uh, you know, in my view, when you look at uh, all of the Disney animation timeline, it's got peaks and valleys in it, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think after the 90s, we went into a little bit of a valley before coming back up out of it. Right. You know, and and there was an awful lot of competition starting to pop up. Totally. You know, there were a lot more uh, studios that were starting to put out uh, animated feature films. Yep. So it wasn't just Disney and Pixar. You know, it was Disney, Pixar, Sony, Fox. You know, yeah. Fox had Blue Sky Studios and they were doing the Ice Age movies and stuff like that. So, you know, there, there was a lot more competition going on out there. Yeah. But what's been great is that it, it's it's, you know, like Al John, your comments being very positive about the film and, and the, the listeners comments as well. And I still, I mean, I still get messages from people, emails, Instagram, whatever, saying how much they enjoyed the movie. And I think that's whatever happened when it first came out, what really matters is that it's, it's, it resonated with, with folks that saw it and continues to resonate and people remember it and it's still out there in the, in the ether. And that's very special to me. And I think that's why we all do what we do is to connect with people. And, you know, I, I've always viewed it as, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, let me put it in this context, look at nightmare before Christmas, Tim Burton's nightmare before Christmas, when that was released in 1993, you know, the studio didn't really know how to market that. They put it out under touchstone because they thought it would might alienate the Disney audience and things like that. Uh, but, you know, the movie is, you know, now 27 years on or something, uh, it, it continues to grow an audience base mm-hmm. and the film continues to resonate with people. And that's the same thing with every one of these films. You know, Meet the Robinsons may have gone out and not been a massive blockbuster, but it went out and did okay. But it's building an audience and it's it's got legs for the long mm-hmm. haul where there are people who are going to watch it as kids who will then show it to their kids yep. and so on, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, that, and that's really what matters. And not to mention the fact that, and tell me if this is true, Steve, it has a distinction of being the 50th animated film for Disney. Is that right? I think so. Yeah. So, I mean, you get the distinction of having the big five O, you know, for, yeah. for Disney, which is what an accomplishment over time. You know, it's it's, yeah. it, it's a great film. Thanks. I appreciate that. So uh, after you did that, um, uh, Steve, you went back into doing storyboarding. Yeah. Um, yeah. I storyboarded on a couple of films there while I was um uh, I went back into development as a director. So then that gave me time to, to board on things like Bolt and uh, Tangled or early versions of Tangled pre pre officially before it was called Tangled, but sure. the, you know, pre Tangled versions. When, when it was called Rapunzel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I, you cool. know, I, by the way, that's a dirty little secret because sometimes these films are in they're they're in uh, development for so long that they they ultimately change change the name and start an, and it starts a fresh slate and all of that development is just written off as as R and D, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but it was neat to be able to um, jump onto these onto a few movies and kind of storyboard help out that way. It was kind of, it was fun to keep that muscle, that storyboard muscle uh, going. And that, and really for a short while, because then you were back in the director's seat for uh, the 2011 Winnie the Pooh movie, Mm -hmm. which which by the way is a confusing title with the previous Winnie the Pooh films. (laughs) I know. (laughs) You know, and I, and I really think that when it was, when it was released to theaters, I think a lot of people thought it was a re-release. Yeah. We wanted to call it. We, we <laughs> I don't know if it was, this would have made any diff, a better title, but we thought the best title was <laughs> it was Winnie the Pooh and the Day in Which Many Things Happened. Because <laughs> it felt very much like a. It felt like a Milne, one of those headings in the you know yeah. chapter heading of the Milne sure. uh, books. And, uh, and it kind of felt a little bit like Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. It was it felt, sort of felt yeah. made it feel like it was of a piece. But then, obviously, that was too long for people. That that um, went against the grain of uh, single word titles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised nobody pitched just poo. Actually, now that you mentioned that single word title, I don't think we ever talked about that. I'm surprised. Yeah, um, I, I'm sure that there would have been eyebrows raised at that. <laughs> How how, how do you think it was doing a uh, the Winnie the Pooh the 2011 Winnie the Pooh feature, which was it was hand drawn, Mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to you know the you know there was such a groundswell of everybody wanted CG. Um, Was that was that a drag on you guys at all, or was it sort of the last hurrah of 2D at Disney Animation? Well, it was never considered to ever do it in CG. Um, right. Between myself, uh, Don Hall, my directing partner, and John Lasseter um, at the time, in our minds, Winnie the Pooh lives as drawings, be it yeah. the Ernest Shepard drawings from the Milne books or the Disney films from the 60s and early 70s. It's it's drawings, sure. it's artwork. So let's do it in 2D and let's really celebrate drawing in the yeah. film as well. So um, so for us, it was like, it was super exciting uh, to get to do that. Um, and, and it the was, studio and was it, coming off of Princess and the Frog. So there was all that. There was, yeah. there, the team was there. The, yeah. the process was there. Everybody was really fresh off of that. So it, it was the last hurrah. I know it's really weird to think. I, I, I know it's as it's it stands, sad. That's the last. It, 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 you know, I, I and I think as the years click by, I think it becomes even. You know, it it, it would be more and more difficult to try and pull a, a team together to do a hand drawn feature of Disney quality. Yeah. You know, yeah, so for sure. So yeah, you know, Winnie the Pooh went out. It, it did some box office. Uh, it added to the franchise, which was a good thing. Uh, beautifully animated uh, and, and a fun story uh after that you started doing storyboarding again and uh you've also i want to just touch on this because we're we're bumping up against an hour but i i wanted to touch on the fact that you've been doing a lot of writing too and do you want to talk a little bit about that um 
you don't have to go into great detail, but uh, I, I think our audience would be interested because, you know, as an artist, you're, you're constantly exploring and growing and trying new things. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, you know, the Disney that I grew up with was the seventies and, and, uh, early eighties. That was my childhood Disney. So I have a great affinity for that time period. Um, but also just a fascination with what was going on in the studio, because I didn't really know what was going on at the studio during that time, because so many of the Disney history books don't talk about it. Um, and so I thought I really wanted to dig into that. I, now that I'm working at Disney and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm an animation professional. I'm colleagues with all these people that were actually there. Yeah. So now I have the opportunity to talk to them and see what was going on. So, so I'm going to say it must've been somewhere around 2009, 2010. I just started, I started with um, Bernie Mattinson, who um, we brought on to Winnie the Pooh as a story consultant and who's just, you know, his film, um, Mickey's Christmas Carol and Great Mouse Detective are two of my, absolute favorite animated films. And so when I got to meet Bernie at Disney and, and talk to him and consider him a friend now, it was kind of like, wow, this is really neat. Anyways, I started with Bernie and then I just kept going and, and, and just began interviewing people about what was going on during this time and the post Walt post, you know, right after Walt Disney's death and, and all these folks were were starting sometime around the early seventies. What was it like? What was the, how, how did it feel coming off of Walt Disney's death and how the people that were left were carrying on that legacy? All these questions that I'd always wondered. Um, so that's kind of led to me compiling it into, uh, into book form. So I've been working on a, on a book about this, uh, this era um, between 1966 and 1986, um, uh, what happened? Yeah. Uh, and I definitely think you you know, you're right in that, you know, nobody's really written anything about that period. There, yeah. There's kind of a void there. It sort of jumps from Walt died and then uh, new management comes into the studio yeah. in 1984, you yeah. know, and you're like, wait, what happened in between all of that? What, what, uh, so one could I, actually, I, I think yeah. it's awesome. I was going to say one could actually call it a black hole. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't, help, I couldn't, help, a, I couldn't a, help myself. Or a black cauldron. Or, oh, yeah. or a black cauldron. Oh, Avery. <laughs> uh, that's really it. And by the way, I want the audience to know Bernie Mattinson started at the Walt Disney Animation or Walt Disney Studios at that point. Uh, he started in 1955. What? Uh, yeah, he started in 1955 wow. and he's still working there I, today. I, I the, admit, in yeah. fact, he is the longest, uh, uh, the longest serving employee of the Walt Disney Company ever, uh, right? Because it, it was John Hench, mm -hmm. uh, and now it's Bernie Manson. And I think Bernie is he is it sixty five years he's been that, or no, it's sixty two years or something like that. Yeah, I know it's past I, sixty. Yeah, yeah. Oh so goodness. so it's like sixty one or sixty two years that he's been working at the company. And he's still were you, working. And were you were you there, Dave, when we had his whatever the sixtieth? I was I not. I, I no. I had already left the studio, so I wasn't there for his sixtieth. So they uh, made him. A, they made you know how you know the service awards. Everybody gets yeah. like for ten, it's a Mickey, and fifteen, it's Tinkerbell or whatever. Right. They made Bernie his own uh, statue. It's an open book, and it has Bernie's face in the 
his picture in the one of the pages and then the mice from Cinderella are all around it and wow he has his own like unique yes service award yeah, so, so so starting with the 50th anniversary service award which there was a lot of people who hit the 50 mark uh Claude Coates was one he, mm-hmm. he had worked at the company for 54 and a half years but for your 50th service award on it's a custom made job. Wow. Oh, is it? Oh, it's, a, one, it's a one-off. That's yeah. Wild. Uh, Carmen Sanderson, who was in the ink and paint department for over 50 years, when she hit the 50 mark, they actually uh, talked to her, asked her what her favorite films that she had worked on. Uh-huh. And then they, they, they actually sculpted a, uh, and, and cast in bronze her own, you know, 50th uh, anniversary service oh, award. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Uh, which, which is pretty cool. You know, I have to say. Yeah. So you you're you're in the midst of doing this book, and when can we expect that book to come out? Uh, hopefully, sometime in the next year or two, something like Excellent. that. Excellent. Excellent. Awesome. Hopefully, uh, in time for the hundredth anniversary of the company. Yeah, hey. that would be cool. That That's would be great. Awesome. That. I think Amazing. that would be good. Yeah. Uh, well, I have to say, Steve, it is so great seeing you and so great talking about, uh, your accomplishments in the business and, yeah. uh, drilling into meet the Robinsons a little bit. You know, yeah. I, I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation on, and I know when your book comes out, we're having you back on to talk, uh, about that book, uh, and all the, the various people you had a chance to talk to. That sounds uh, great. To I would love that. to. Yeah. Thank you for being on the Skull Rock podcast, Steve. Thanks for the opportunity, Dave and John. I really appreciate it. It was great. Thanks so much. Hey, guys, you ever seen that really old movie, Uh, Empire Strikes Back? You know that part? Uh, Where they're on the snow planet? Uh, With the walking thingy? Skull Rock podcast. Maybe the kids are onto something. Wow. So it, it was an awesome conversation. Yeah, I love. I mean, so, you know, Steve. Steve's such a terrific guy, uh, and and just hearing some of the backstory on Meet the Robinsons was just. Uh, I I just so enjoy that kind of stuff, and I I hope our audience does as well. Yeah, we had a lot of things um, kind of in common. Um, you know, talking about the aspects of Meet the Robinsons. So please uh, revisit the the movie on Disney Plus. It's just an amazing movie, very underrated, as we talked about for sure. And uh, Dave, it is the holiday season, and I I would mm. I would hope that uh, everyone out there, our great listeners, spread the love. You know, we have been featured as a must hear podcast, the best Disney podcast list. I will put the list in in our little show notes uh, so people can check it out but it is absolutely great that people are listening and spreading the word about the show and uh yeah and and singing its praises and getting comments on facebook as well dave so uh absolutely you know it, I absolutely think it's awesome. we're number 13 we're yeah. number 13 <laughs> and uh karen karen ellis uh, on facebook says great one this week uh, talking about our John Canemaker show from last week. Great one. Trying to find the book uh, book list so I can order them. Thank you. I'll put the book list. Um, the book list was put on our uh, show notes, Karen, but I will put it in your comment here on Facebook. But it is an awesome way to kind of get in touch with us as well as email. You can also email Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com or myself, Aljon, at SkullRockPodcast.com. Uh, like us on all the socials. Please give us a subscribe and share the show wherever uh, on social uh, with any one of our podcast links because we're everywhere now, literally everywhere. iHeartRadio, 
and Spotify, Apple, Google, what have you, Stitcher. We're everywhere. We're You're going to trip over us. You that's, can trip over us that's at this right. point. That's right. <laughs> uh, we'd also like to send out a shout out to all our supporters throughout the year. You know, you can go to anchor.fm forward slash support and uh, click that link, uh, link in our bio, if you will, and, um, and support the show that way as well. So thank you to all our great listener supporters. Dave, you've got the final word. Well, Al, John, you know, with the holiday season really just a a few weeks away, I mean, we're in the holiday season, but, you know, Christmas is a few weeks away, New Year's. Uh, I I just want people to know that it's getting busy out there. There's people rushing around. Slow down a little bit. Enjoy the holidays. Immerse yourself in the spirit. And please uh, think about others this holiday season, especially the folks up in Kentucky, our heart goes out to them. And uh, with that, I would say peace and love to everybody. Uh, And we look forward to seeing you next week right here on the Skull Rock Podcast. I'm Al John Goh, co-host of the Disney List Podcast as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock Podcast here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel, vacations for people all the time. Give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves. Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks well over a hundred times. So they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money. Where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next Disney cruise, Disney park trip, Adventures by Disney? They can contact me at themeparksandcruises at gmail.com. Skull Rock Podcast is made possible by listeners like you. We'd love to thank Charles, Lindsay, Spencer, and Joshua. To support this podcast to sustain future episodes, visit anchor.fm forward slash Skull Rock Podcast. I'm Kristen Hetzel, co-host of Dining at Disney Podcast. Every week I chat about dining at Disneyland and Walt Disney World Resort and Disney Cruise Line with my fellow foodie, Bubba. We also feature restaurants and food reviews, information to help you plan your dining, Disney food news, recipes, and a monthly panel discussion. Visit DiningAtDisney.com and subscribe to Dining at Disney Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. Dining at Disney Podcast, the happiest plate on earth.